All right, everybody, we are in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. I uh, spread the books around because I keep forgetting to mention it because I want you guys to be able to grab one. Um, so if you know if you don't need one, it's, it's around, you can just shove it aside. Or if you need one and it's around, just take it. It's not anybody's. They don't belong to anybody except they belong to everybody. So just grab whatever you want. I have an extra one right up here because I did two per row and I had one left over and I wasn't about to make it uneven. So I got just an extra one lying up here if you need it. Um, so that's that. that. That will get you through chapter 39, which we won't finish chapter 39 until December, maybe, because we're going to take the summer off. So um, I hope, Lord willing, to finish, you, you know, I, would, I hope to finish chapter 22, um, or chapter 23, rather, because that will end a section. We're going to finish a section this evening. Uh, chapters 11 and 12, 12 is a very short chapter. We'll finish that section this evening, and that will end basically the first segment of the book, the introduction of the introduction of the book. And then starting with chapter 13 through 23, you have a series of burdens against nations where prof the prophet just lists you know, a punishment that is coming to this nation and that nation and this people and that people over and over and over and over. He gives you that for about 11 chapters. And then it shifts gears again till the end of the first half. 39 and then it totally resets in chapter 40 through 66 so when i originally set out with this class i don't remember when we started i think it was like mid-february um i said i was being very conservative and i said we probably won't finish until going into the summer of 2024 but that was very conservative and it ended up not being the case now that we've gone through it so much um i'm able to revise that i think well i think we could have this whole class finished going into the summer of 2023 so that's taking this coming summer off because I'll be teaching on Sundays in room one in the summer because I'll be gone most Wednesdays. All right. So that's your you know tentative sh uh, schedule. But nobody should be looking at their book right now because what I'm teaching is the book. And I don't want you reading ahead and you'll get all the funny little jokes I'm going to have. And they won't be funny once you've already read them. So don't read ahead. You're not allowed to read ahead. All right. Can we read ahead this summer? You can read ahead this summer, but you have to promise to forget. Knowing you people, you'll forget. Because I can preach the same five sermons and no one will ever even notice. That's not just a you people problem, but you're not making the reputation any better, I'm just saying. Because I've said things in sermons and I'm like, I know I've said this before, I will see who catches it. And let nobody catches it. So, you know, that's on you. All right. Isaiah chapter 11. We'll begin in verse number one. If you remember the past couple of chapters... Um, well, not, not just the past couple. Back in chapter 9, a couple of chapters ago, we had a great little opening that was messianic. And then the rest of the chapter was very dour. It was very dark. It was very, things are terrible. Everything's bad. and only going to get worse. Chapter 10 continued that dark theme. Chapter 11, we flip the script again. Chapter 11 is very optimistic. It's very positive. The entirety of chapter 11 and chapter 12 is about the Messiah to come. Soak it in, because after that... You don't get much more than a little reference here or there just in passing about the Messiah for the whole rest of the first half of Isaiah. You won't really pick up with Jesus stuff until chapter 40, uh, which is a completely different segment of the book. So we're going to get a great little section here for chapters 11 and 12 talking about the Messiah. What I want you to do as we go through this text is I want you to see that Isaiah is telling you about the Messiah who we know of as Jesus and we look back on you have to keep in your minds that we're looking ahead to 
the Messiah, not looking back on. So we're going to read about the Messiah through the prism of Judah and their plight and their situation. All right, A lot of what he says and the way he says it and the word choices and stuff... Um, don't take this baby out just for making a ooh sound. All right? All right. Um, not that it wouldn't be a gross distraction to everyone in that little section. But. All right. So see, see the text through the prism of the, pro the problems with Judah. All right? All right. Verse 1, chapter 11. And there shall come forth a King James's rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Previous chapter ended... With God telling Judah that Assyria is coming for you, Assyria is marching. If you remember how the chapter actually ended, was you kept getting city after city after city, getting closer and closer in proximity to Jerusalem. And it's, it's um, depicting the advance of the army of the Assyrian Empire coming into the south and marching closer and closer to Jerusalem, where they would presumably, they think, lay siege and conquer the city and topple Jerusalem in their mind, on their way to attacking Egypt. That was their ultimate goal. But that's not going to happen. They're going to get to the front doorstep of Jerusalem, and God's going to smack them down. So you have this, this picture at the end of, of bleak and horrible circumstances. They're, they're conquering, 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 but it ends with a little twinge of optimism. Yes, they are, but God is going to stop them. God is on your side. The north is going to fall. Yes, but the south is going to be spared. And ultimately, they'll be conquered by Babylon, but that's down the road. So God has a plan for his people. The, the things that are happening to them or happening to the north or happening anywhere are not just random circumstances. They're not what Assyria thinks. It's just, look how big and bad we are. Look how much we can conquer. It's not that simple. It is God allowing them to do what they do. God using them to do what he wants, wielding them like a weapon against the kingdoms of the world, in particular his own people, so that he could get the world in the right position, in the right form, to uh, be ready to receive the Messiah when he's ready to bring the Messiah into the world. God has a master plan. So Judah needs to keep that in mind. Because right now, all they're seeing is, in the immediate circumstance, this evil army is marching toward me, and I'm about to die, and I'm panicking. And God says, well, if you listen... You don't need to panic because I've already promised you, you have a Messiah coming. A Messiah that is coming from your people. A Messiah that is coming from your land, the promised land that I gave you. And so if that nation really is coming to destroy you, then I'm a liar. And I'm not a liar, so that nation's not. And they need to make those connections in their mind, put those twos and twos together to understand that. God has a plan for them. Now, he's already spent the previous chapters describing how he has a control over the nations, how he has um, uh, authority and, and um, the, the, a means to maneuver them on the global chessboard according to his will. And we spent a whole book talking about that in particular in the book of Daniel. And here he says, I have a plan for salvation, not just a plan for destruction, which we'll get in the next 11 chapters to come, but I have a plan not just for destruction, but of salvation as well. And not just salvation for my people, but as we'll see as we go through this, a salvation for all nations and all peoples. That salvation is depicted here, not as a baby, as he was in chapter 9, not as a baby, as he was in chapter 7, but in this case, something non-human. He's depicted as, well, my Bible says a rod from the stem of Jesse. What does your Bible say? A shoot. A shoot? An upshoot. You have from the ground a little sprout. That might be the best translation to, for a modern vernacular. A sprout will come. This, this uh, thing will grow, is the way he describes it. A branch growing out of 
the roots of the tree, in another metaphor, the tree of Jesse. Who is Jesse? Father of David. The father of David. Therefore, who are we talking about here? We are talking about someone that will come previously from God, from God, from God. Here, a reminder, not just from God, but from man. Not just from man, but from King David. Not just God on earth, but a king of the people. Now that will stand in sharp contrast to the kinds of kings that the nation was currently familiar with. And as we go through the chapter, we're going to get some descriptions of how great a king he is. And I want you to keep in mind, what kind of king would they compare him to? Judah, hearing this prophecy of the king to come, would compare him to the kings they've got. And the kings they've got or had don't usually measure up. Look at verse 2. Of this king, he says, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He is described coming with divine power, a power given to him by the Holy Spirit, which you can see in the New Testament, Matthew 3.16, Jesus is baptized, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Thus, his miraculous ministry begins. But look in the particulars of what he says. He will have understanding. The things that ordinary people have to dig their noses into a book and, and grind and learn and, and memorize, <coughs> he just, it comes naturally to him. The things that we would forget over time if we don't constantly commit it to memory, the things we just fade from the mind, he always knows. Have you ever heard or have you ever prayed, heard someone pray or yourself prayed, that the preacher or whoever's about to speak would have a ready recollection? Okay, well... I appreciate it, but I can't actually have a ready recollection. The best I can give you is a learned recollection. I can give you the best that I've learned that I can remember of what I've learned. Because there's like a lot of things that I've learned, things that have just come in my brain over the years, and I've forgotten like 70% of it. And there's like a sliver that I can remember. And of that sliver, you're going to get like 10% of it that I think is relevant in that sermon. So you're getting like fractions of fractions. It's not even a piece of a pie. It's basically the crust is what you're getting from me on Sunday morning. I'm sorry. When you pray for someone to have a ready recollection, what you're actually saying is, God, let that person know everything. Well, I thank you, but I can't, because that's a miracle. Jesus knew everything. He had it instantly in his recollection, an instant ready recollection to the things that he needed to say in that moment. He had, second thing, wisdom. He had the ability to apply that miraculously attained knowledge, whereas we have to study and through trial and error, learn what works and what doesn't work, what's right and what's not right. Okay, let's follow that train of thought. Nope, dead end. Let's back up and try a different thought process. The Lord doesn't have to do that. He just instantly knows, and it's always instantly the right answer. You see that multiple times in the New Testament uh, when he's sparring with the Pharisees and the, the scribes and so forth, and they'd come with, with questions to challenge him, and they'd throw a pop quiz at him. Well, what, what about this? Or what would you do in this situation? And instantly he has the answer. And it's almost always in contrast to the, the um, presumed wisdom of the day. He, he's, he stood so in opposition to the, um, oh, not proverbial wisdom, the uh, conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom of his day. And to the point where it baffled and even angered the so-called religious leaders because they already had written in stone and solidified and codified all the things that they said is the way to answer these questions. And here comes Jesus very confidently giving the opposite answer which, when you think about it, makes so much more sense than the stupid answers that they were living off of. Because he had actual spiritual miracle wisdom. He will have, next one in this verse, counsel. Which 
my Bible says that, but the meaning is he will have good common horse sense. He will have good, simple application sense. The, uh, the very often underappreciated character trait of just sharp instincts. He will know when to speak, when not to speak, what to say. Like he could have the answer, but how do you word that answer? That's a special talent that not everybody has. And it has to be developed with us normal people. The master always knew not just what to say, but how to say it, when to say it, and what way to phrase it, and so forth. Next, he will have, the King James says, might. Does your Bible say valor? Anybody have valor here? Does anybody have bravery? The meaning is moral bravery in the verse. He will not just be courageous to jump up and you know punch somebody in the face. That's, that's not the kind of courage our Lord has. It's a, a man who is, who is not afraid to stand up and speak for what is right. But I would, as having said that, I would still remind you, on two different occasions, he entered the temple, he made a whip, he drove out the money changers. It takes a special kind of bravery for righteousness that the Lord had to do something like that. That's this word, moral bravery, valor, a willingness to stand up for justice and, and right, rightness. He will have two more things, knowledge, cunningness, awareness. He'll be quick on his feet knowledgeable about any particular topic. I would have to study everything to be able to speak on any given subject, but the Lord, he could always know immediately, no matter what you were talking about. And finally, he says the Messiah will have a fear of the Lord, reverence for God. He will have all those prior stated accomplishments and qualities and, and abilities, but he will not be thinking of how great he is. He will use them to the glory of the Lord. So whatever he has, it's instantly, readily provided for him, but it is to serve the Lord, to serve humanity for the glory of God. Now, if, if that's the Lord's attitude, then I, when or you, when we have to study and grind with our noses to the grindstone and, and work very hard just to learn scraps of information, we should not walk away saying, look at this diploma I've got. Look how smart I am. Or look at this thing that I've learned. Look how smart I am. It's not about you. What can you do with that knowledge? If all you're doing is attaining that knowledge you can talk about or think about how smart you are, well, you wasted three, four, six years of your life. What can you do with that knowledge? Because my master had it instantly. He could have spent the whole rest of his life bragging. Instead, he spent the rest of his natural life serving with what he had because he glorified the Lord. Verse 3. And shall make him of quick understanding, speaking of the Messiah, in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. Here's where you really start to get some contrast, because the judges and the kings, the leadership of the people of the day, Isaiah writes this, absolutely did that. We already had previous chapters that talked about the injustices of the legal system and so forth, where judges could be bribed, and if you're as guilty as guilty can be, you might get off if you can bribe the judge good enough. You might be as innocent as possible. You might be convicted if the other guy bribes the judge. The judges were cruel, and judges were, were fickle, and judges were inconsiderate. Judges were biased. But this Lord is a judge who judges unbiasedly. He doesn't not judge. He judges unbiasedly. But I want to start at the beginning of the verse because my Bible has this big, long phrase. It says, and shall make him a quick understanding. How does your Bible start the verse? Shall delight. Huh? Shall delight. He shall delight. It will finish. Keep reading. In the fear of the Lord. Shall delight. What do you have, Jesse? Same thing. Same thing. Anybody have anything different than that? All right. It is one word 
in the, the Hebrew language. Again, mine, it's like one, two, three, four, five, it's like six words. Yours is three words here, there. It's just one word in the Hebrew. And it's the same word translated as spirit all over the Old Testament. He will have a spirit. It's the same spirit that moved over the face of the waters in Genesis 1 2. It's the same spirit that the Holy Spirit who inspires Jesus to be able to have all these things. But it's also the word that means this is his motivation, this is his compulsion, this is his driving force. He has this driving attitude. It's not that the Holy Spirit is a driving force. I'm saying it's the same word applied in this way. That means he has this motivation to fear the Lord. He delights here, says. Delights here, says. What, what, what is his pleasure? What is his driving force? It is to please the Lord, to reverence the Lord. And in so doing, he sees the plight of the people and he judges accordingly. That's the second half of the verse. Not after his eyes or the pleasing of the hearing of his ears. You can't sweet talk him. And get him to change his judgment. His judgment is going to be sound, true, just. Unlike the judges of the people. Verse 4. Speaking of. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. With, with rightness. Is all of his judgments will be righteous because they are right in that order. They are always right because the things he does are right. So his judgments will be correct because his judgments will be unbiased is the point. It's that cycle. From verse 3. So in righteousness he will judge the poor and he will reprove with equity, with fairness, your Bible might say, for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. A little bit of that reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount as he's talking about praising and pleasing the meek of the earth. The meek will inherit the earth, Jesus says, and so forth. But you have this attitude of a, of a judge who is not going to be swayed unjustly he's a judge who's not going to render a verdict unfairly what he does is going to be right because it's going to be in the spirit of doing right he wants to help even if helping what needs to be helped offends or angers or upsets or hurts a lot of unjust people who happen to be in power that kind of well they're too big to fail so we have to prop them up even to the expense of hurting little people that doesn't exist with jesus Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, not blessed are the powerful who can pay me off. That's not how it works with him. Again, sharp contrast to the leadership of the day. He will use his mouth to smite the wicked, not to attack the poor and the downtrodden. I have it. Maybe I'm, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Um, Yeah, well, I had it written down somewhere. I don't remember where. So if I repeat myself in a minute, you'll probably forget. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, there, there is this um, funny irony. I don't know if funny is the right word. This is irony in how the nation of Israel said to God when they first became a nation, they were living together in the, in, the, in the promised land. They said, give us a king like the other nations. They had judges. They had prophets. They had people that were appointed by God with divine authority to rule over them and to guide them and help them. That was not good enough. For them. Should have been good enough. So God gave them. But they wanted a king. Not just a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations have a king. They might as well have had a king. They had Samuel. Who wasn't a king by title. But by job description. He did the job. He did it better than the other nations. But they didn't want that. They want a king like the other nations. So God said no offense. It's, it's to me. It's not an offense to you. So we'll give them a king. And they got Saul. That was a fiasco. They got David. That was all right. They got Solomon. That was okay. They got the next king, and it just that's when everything just went haywire. They couldn't even go three generations without the whole thing splitting in half, literally in half, if not worse. They wanted a king like the other nations. So God said, here's a king like the other nations. And then what have we learned in the centuries since then? They basically are saying to God now, we do not want a king like the other nations. 
Don't do that again. So God says, fine, I'll give you another kind of king. I'll give you a king who's like me. You'll have this spiritual king, this Messiah king, this holy king. All right, that's fine. That's great. That's what they say they want. But then when they get that king, what's their attitude? Oh, we don't like this king. This king isn't a warrior. This king is a shepherd. This king is a carpenter. This king is a whip. This king doesn't even fight back when he's attacked. This king says his kingdom isn't of this world. He wants to keep us in slavery to Rome. And Jesus just says, that's the kind of king I am. That's, it's, not, it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual one. Well, we don't like that king. We're going to kill that king. All right, God, give us another king. Mm -mm. No, you only get the one spiritual king. You, you had all kinds of earthly kings. You didn't want them. I'm only giving you one spiritual king. You get the one chance. You don't like him. That's too bad, which is Hebrews chapter 6, incidentally. You get the one Jesus. You don't like him. You get no others. So they want this king like the other nations. Well, look at the problem and contrast it with how good their king can be if they'll accept him. How do you describe him? Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins. What's your Bible say? Belt. Just belt? That's kind of boring. Everybody's Bible say belt. Fine. I guess that's fine. Girdle of his loins is so classical. And faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. It, it, when, you, when you hear girdle, okay, in a spiritual context, let's keep it spiritual. What do you think of biblically? What text do you think of? And it's the only time you would ever talk about the girdle in a spiritual way. I guess because you have a different translation. It's the, it's the, uh, the whole armor of God, the Christian armor, Ephesians chapter 6. How he, he shrouds himself, he covers himself in truth and so forth. Well, here the girdle is righteousness. It's not the same thing, maybe not even the same idea in Paul's mind when he wrote Ephesians 6, but certainly related, sister texts here. Righteousness is what he wraps himself with. Um, um, faithfulness is what secures everything that he holds, and everything that you see as he presents himself. Well, what do I see when I see this Messiah King? Righteousness and faithfulness, right in the sight of God, loyal to the character of God is what it means. Verse 6, as a result of his good ruling, as a result of his good leadership, look at what his kingdom is going to be like. This is verse 6. It's one of the more famous parts of this whole chapter because it's been taken and ripped very violently out of its context and stuck very aggressively into a different context by premillennialists to say, when Jesus comes back and he finally sets up his kingdom on earth, this is what it's going to be like, and we'll have peace in the valley, and it'll be like this. Peace in the valley of the song includes this verse and paraphrase. Verse 6, the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. Now, that's not the verbatim quote from Peace in the Valley, but that's the same kind of imagery that's put in the song and put there incorrectly. Because Peace in the Valley is a premillennial song. It's pretty to sing, and Elvis sang it in 56, and we all swoo. But that's, it's, it's, it's not true doctrine. Because Jesus is not going to come back one day to build a kingdom on earth. He came back a while back to build a kingdom on earth. His kingdom on earth is here. Everybody raise your hand. Everybody raise your hand. You are his kingdom on earth. You're here. Stop waiting for the future kingdom. It's you. You are his kingdom. He came to build you, to put you in this world. It's not of this world. It's a spiritual kingdom because you're Americans, but you are his kingdom. So you get to be in that dual citizenship role. So that means there are other people on the other side of the world that are English or that are French or that are Russian or that are Ukrainian or that are Tibetan or whatever. And if they're brethren in Christ, they're of the same kingdom as you. That's his kingdom. That's this kingdom. The kind of kingdom is a kingdom that he's talking about is a kingdom of peace and prosperity of a spiritual kind. Because I can still be gunned down by some psychopath. 
People can still be killed in wars in Russia or Ukraine. People can be massacred and butchered in China or something like that. But if they are brethren in Christ, it's just killing a body. Spiritually, they live. Spiritually, they have peace. And that's the picture painted here. And it ruins the metaphor. When you take it, you try to make it literal, like foolish preachers, false preachers do when they talk about the premillennial so-called kingdom to come. And they, they, they paint vivid, literal pictures, thinking that literally actual lions will be having naps with actual babies. No, no. The picture is for an image to convey an idea. It's apocalyptic. What will it be like when the Messiah's kingdom comes? Peace will reign. How do you describe that in visual metaphor? A wolf will lie down with the lamb, predator and prey, not fighting anymore. A leopard lies down with the goat, predator and prey, not fighting anymore, not hunting and killing and dying anymore. A calf with the young lion and the fatling all together, and a little child leading them all. This little child, by the way, is not Jesus. It's just a little child. Like any, any little child, this, it, the picture of innocence in human form, the picture of delicacy and tenderness and um, it, the most at risk for something hurting them is just going to be carrying around a leash, carrying around a lion, leading a lion wherever it will go, which you, can, you would never want. But in a picture of prosperity and peace, this is what the Messiah's kingdom looks like. Enemies and, and um, the big bad and the, the bully and the bullied together. Enemies and those who fight with each other in harmony. Peace reigning is the picture. Verse 7. And the cow and the bear shall feed, and their young ones lie down together, and the lion eats straw like the ox. Does a lion eat straw? No, a lion eats ox. But now, metaphorically, harmony, peace, getting along in this reigns. Somebody read for me, please. Zechariah. Go forward in your Bible about 70 pages, maybe. Zechariah chapter 8, maybe not say, maybe like 170 pages. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Somebody please. Zechariah 8, verses 4 and 5. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, there shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. This is the same picture. It's just using different metaphorical images. The same idea of this, this city that is so worried about being ravaged and destroyed and overtaken by an army is now pictured as this peaceful, prosperous land where children are frolicking in the streets and old people are walking with their canes and everybody's happy. It's just the most picturesque kind of thing. It's a Rockwell painting. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's perfection. It's just a vivid illustration of the peace of Jesus Christ. In reality, Christians are going to be persecuted, they're going to be murdered, they're going to be uh, hunted down like dogs. You're still going to have nations fighting nations and Christians caught up in these stupid wars and so forth. From the beginning of Christianity to the present and to the end, those things will always be. So you look around and you think, there's no peace anywhere, but the peace is spiritual. The peace is inner. The peace is from Christ, not from the world. So don't... Don't get the picture of peace from peace in the valley. It's a spiritual kind of peace, not of the future to come and something like that, but of the present day that you can have now through Jesus Christ. In that same metaphor, go back to Isaiah 11, verse 8. And the suckling child shall play in the hole of an asp. 
a snake, you might, the Bible might say. And the weaned child will put his hand in, the King James says a cockatrice, which is a mythological animal, and this is not that. It's just another word for snake. Dim. So it's like this image of how prosperous and peaceful reign. You'll have ch a child to stick in his hand in a snake hole and pull it out and be perfectly fine. You know, something I'm sure you may have done in your youth, but this time they'll be perfectly fine. No problem at all because peace reigns. There's no fear. There's no danger. There's no worry. Christ is in control is the picture. You could even, if you wanted to, zoom in a little bit and see maybe Isaiah is planting a seed to talk about how this is about Jew-Gentile harmony, Jew-Gentile relationship, and things like that. You could even go that one level deeper, predator-prey kind of thing, and, and natural-born enemies now coming together. But I don't think you have to go that deep with it. I think you can just zoom out and see in the big picture what's he saying. People who hate each other are going to love each other. If that doesn't summarize Christianity, I don't know what does. Verse 9. They, all those previously mentioned things, predators and praise alike, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. This is not the first time that Isaiah has referred to the Messianic age and the kingdom of Christ as the holy mountain. We got that all the way back in chapter 2. So it's not too much for him just to pluck that metaphor and reinsert it here. He's already established it. He's already laid that foundation. He can build on it here in chapter 11. The holy mountain of Christ, the holy mountain of the Messiah, is his spiritual kingdom from which flows his salvation, his gospel. And everyone who belongs to that spiritual mountain will not hurt each other. I belong to Mount Zion. Though I have never been to Jerusalem, it is not in my bloodline. I am not an ethnic Jew or a national Jew or anything else. I don't speak Hebrew. I have no connection to those people at all, except for the fact that a long time ago, there was a Hebrew named Abraham whose seed became Jesus Christ, who saved me, this person who's not related at all to Abraham. Yet through Christ, I can belong to Abraham, Galatians chapter 3. So therefore, even though I've never been to the actual Mount Zion, even though I've never walked up actual Mount Moriah, even though I've never approached the actual temple of God, it's my temple, it's my mountain, it's my homeland. And I go back there metaphorically every time I worship God. I go back to spiritual Zion. We sing the song, we're marching to Zion, marching to Zion, and we use that song talking about heaven. Fine. Not going to shoot that song down. That song's fine. Understand, though, that there's two layers to that metaphor. We're marching to Zion in the heavenly sense to get out of this world, to just be existing in the presence of God entirely. But even in the right now, we belong to Zion. We are citizens of Zion, marching out of this world to belong there in the literal sense. But that's this idea, that we belong to his holy mountain, so we're not going to do those things. I'm the ox, I'm not going to hurt the lamb, and so forth. For the earth, the end of the verse 9, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord to, to the extent that the waters cover the sea. This is almost a, a summary of the beginning of chapter 2, if you want to go back there later and look at that again, because he told you how in chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord, um, that from it will flow the salvation of the Messiah. Well, that's what you get right here. The earth is full of the knowledge of the God, the knowledge of the Lord. So we don't have to say, come, let's go up and learn, because we will already learn. We will already have learned. We don't have to say, let's go up to the mountain to be taught. We already have been taught. And we, will be, we having been taught, we having become part of that holy nation, just belong to the mountain already. That's basically verse 9 in a nutshell. Verse 10. And in that day, there shall, there shall be a root of Jesse, a, as we previously established, uh, an upshoot, a, a sprig, a growing forth from the stem of Jesse's family tree, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. 
to it shall the Gentiles seek. And that's the part where the Jews would just kind of ignore that part. And his rest shall be glorious. His rest, his ease, his comfort will be glorious. Does everybody's Bible say ensign? Or does somebody's Bible say something else? Banner. Huh? Banner. Banner? Okay. So it is exactly what it sounds like. You would have your battlefield and... Oh, even better than even better than a battlefield. Keep it. Let's keep it Hebrew, because you would have when the people of Israel were uh, a nomadic people, they would have the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was where in the camp. Anybody know? Center. It's in the exact center. Yes, exactly. And you would have the different tribes would circle around it. And this is not an approximation. This is just it is an approximation. It's not accurate. So you have here, and all the various tribes would surround it. And then every now and then, for one purpose or another, holidays, other kind of events, battle, things like that. Uh, they would raise the banners, your Bible would say, they would raise the incense, the, the flags, these things. They would raise them up on the, the tabernacle, and that would signal for the, the people, which, you know, as you're marching, naturally you start to just spread out a little bit. It would be the sign, oh, we need to hunker in. We need to come in close. We need to pack in around the holy tent of God. And so they would raise the banners to say, come close to God. All right? Now, if I'm reading Isaiah, and I'm a, he a Hebrew, or I'm a Jew, an Israelite, I know that metaphor. So read that again. In that day, in this era of the Messiah, will come the root of Jesse. And he will stand as an ensign, as this raising of the banners for the people. But hang on. Because he's already identified the Messiah has come in verse 1 of this chapter. He's already told us all the blessings and the promises of peace that will follow. So is Isaiah doubling back and restarting that same prophecy? Or is this another layer to the prophecy? It's another layer to the prophecy. In the first nine verses, what you had was the Messiah is coming. He'll be a sprig to grow up from the branch of Jesse. He'll be the root in this, the uh, seed line of King David. And he will bring peace and prosperity to the nation of Israel. He will be your king. They don't get how. They think he'll be an actual king on earth, but whatever. He will be your spiritual king over the nation of Israel. Okay, that's great. That's the first nine verses. But then that same king of yours, Jew, will be raised up not only for you to rally to, but for everybody to rally to. And that's the, the little four words in the, or five words in the middle of the verse that is conveniently overlooked by the people who only want to belong to uh, the physical nation of Israel. Again, look at verse 10. In that day will this root of Jesse stand as an ensign for the people, and to it shall the Gentiles seek. Back in the time of Moses, they would raise the banners, and to it would the nation of Israel seek. They would see the banners, head to the banners. They would seek for the banners. Well, now this ensign is going to raise up, except it's not going to be a flag around a, a tabernacle. It's going to be a cross on Mount Golgotha, or the hill Golgotha. It's going to rise up as a banner. It's going to be rising up as this ensign, to say to the whole world, come to Jesus. To say to the whole world, anybody can be saved now. It's not just, I'm the king of the Jews, you're all excluded. It's, I'm the king of the Jews, and our kingdom is now open to everybody. See, the Jews would read Isaiah, and they would get to those messianic parts, and they would twist them, because they didn't want to accept Christ. And they would get to those parts that talked about Gentile salvation, and they would twist them, because they didn't want to be inclusive. So they would read this and they would ignore entirely the reference to the Gentiles seeking them. When you get to verse 11 and 12 and 13 as we go on, they're going to start saying, and we'll, I'll repeat myself when we get to those parts, they're going to start saying things like, well, what it really means is God's going to raise up the Messiah 
for the nation that's been scattered by all these conquests that have happened to us. And the nation of Israel will come back home. So some of the nation of Israel, some of the nation of Judah, they may have been in captivity in Persia, and they may have wandered away from Persia and found themselves far away, and the banner of the Messiah will come and will call them from all these other nations, call the Jews out of those other nations back home. Well, you might have a good argument, except he says Gentiles, in which you are not. So he says, I'm going to raise up this ensign, this banner, this flag for all to see, a rallying flag for the Gentiles to seek and to come to find by seeking him, his rest, his peace, his relaxation, his glorious abode. Verse 11. And it shall come to pass in that day, the day of everyone rallying to the Messiah, that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. Isaiah has already prophesied, and he will again, the first recovery of the remnant. And it is leaving captivity in Babylon. You are going to go into Babylonian captivity, and I am going to save the faithful few. I'm going to pull you out of Babylon. You're going to come back home. That's the first recovery. But here, he says there's going to be a second recovery. The first one is physical. I'm going to save my physical people. The second one is spiritual. I'm going to save my spiritual people, which is not just you, the Jews. Keep going. The Lord will set his hand to recover the remnant the second time, which shall be left from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and the islands of the sea, scattered all around are all these various people that God's going to call. And the Jews will read that, and the Jews will say, well, here we are in Hamath or in Cush and so forth in Egypt, and that's us. We, just, we wandered away, and now we're going to come back home. Just us, though. The Egyptians stay in Egypt. We come out of Egypt. The, the Cushites stay in Cush. We're going to come out of Cush. The people of the Mediterranean stay in the Mediterranean. It's not for you. It's our Messiah. He's just for us. But we had Gentiles established in the previous verse. So it's not just you. It's everybody being rallied to the flag of the cross. Verse 12. Isn't that what Jesus said in John 12? And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. Not just my people. Verse 12. And he shall set up an ensign. What does your Bible say? Yeah, but the next phrase. For whom? How many nations? You put an S at the end of a word. Does that make a plural or singular? How many nations? Not just Jews. Not just you. If he had said for the nation, well, then the nation is Israel. But he said the nations. How many is that? Everybody. And he shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, in addition, and gather together the dispersed of Judah, in addition, from the four corners of the earth. That's the verse where the Jews will say, look, it's just talking about us here, except he said Gentiles. He didn't say from the Gentiles in verse 9. He said the Gentiles. Verse 13. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. This is talking about the conflict between north and south, which had gotten so bad. I mean, for a long time, they were just... I go my way, you go your way, you're your nation, I'm my nation, we don't talk to each other, except maybe we might trade some corn or something. That's, they didn't have much of a relationship. But things had deteriorated so much between Israel and Judah, the north and the southern kingdom, that the Israel of the north, they were conspiring with other nations to invade and take over Judah. I mean, it, it was a cold war about to break hot. But now, God says, through the Messiah's reign, you're going to be at peace again. Judah and Israel, north and south, We'll no longer have this envy for each other, this adversarial conflict. That'll be all removed, cut off. In Ephraim will not envy Judah. Ephraim is the north. It's a synecdoche for the north. Judah will not vex Ephraim. You're not going to be picking fights with the north. They're not going to be attacking the south. It's going to be peace. Verse 14. 
But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab, and the children of Ammon shall obey them. You're not going to be fighting with each other. You're going to be united. And the way he describes what comes next is, together united, you're going to go conquer all these Gentile nations. And the Jews love that, except they took it literally. And they thought, when the Messiah comes, it'll be this great military victory. Right now, Assyria started out as this little city-state that blossomed and grew and became this mighty empire. Babylon started out as this little city-state, a vassal to Assyria, that blossomed and grew and came, became this mighty empire. The Medes was just this tribe that got, became big and became a mighty kingdom, and the Persians became a big, mighty kingdom, and together a big, mighty empire. They all started small, they became big. Well, hey, look at us, we're Ju Jerusalem. We're Judah. We're big. The Messiah's going to come. He's going to make us really humongous. We're going to be the empire. We're going to be the ones conquering. We're going to be the ones shedding blood. And then he gets there and he's like, put your sword away, Peter. That's not what we're here to do. This is not a revolution. We're not cutting off heads. We're not cutting off ears because you missed. We're not doing that. This is peace. This is come take me and kill me if you must. And they don't understand that because they thought, I thought Isaiah said it was a revolution. Yeah, because you took it literal. What kind of conquest does Jesus have? If you're not a Christian and I'm saving your soul, I'm saving your soul by killing what you are right now, which is a lost person. Because when I'm done with you, you won't be a lost person. You'll have put that lost you to death, and I'll have helped you pull the trigger. I will have baptized you into Christ so that you put that old self to death and become a new person. Think of how many people, Marshall Keeble, one of the most effective and powerful evangelists of the 20th century. I don't even know how many thousands of people he baptized. Think of how many people he killed. How many sinners he killed because they went into the water and they died and they came up alive again. See, that's the, that's the idea. It's a spiritual death. That's why we fight a spiritual war with a spiritual sword. The sword that I wield can't cut you except cut your heart, Hebrews 4. It can't, it can't draw blood. It can point you to his. It's a spiritual warfare. And so when you conquer them, it's, it's written in militaristic terms. But the metaphor is pointing you to spiritual conquest of the Messiah. A same metaphor, by the way, that the writer of Revelation will lift and use when he talks about the four horsemen and the conquest of the Messiah in Revelation 6. But anyway, verse 15. And the Lord shall utterly destroy the tongue of the Egyptian sea, the Gulf of Suez. And with his mighty wind, he will shake his hand over the river and shall smite it in the seven streams and make men go over dry shod. He's going to utterly decimate the Egyptians, except he's not talking about hellfire and brimstone, blow them up. He's talking about the gospel's going to go there and save them. But you can see why they might not see that. But if they would just consider the possibility that it's a metaphor, then they should have let the Messiah come and he could have said to them, you know what, Isaiah said that, here's what he meant, now follow me. Jesus tried to do that and they put him on a cross and killed him. Little do they know that was the point. But anyway, verse 16. And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria. Like it was in the day that Israel came out of the land of Egypt, there will be this road that one travels to go home. The Messiah has set up his incident. He set up his banner. He set up his rallying flag. And all the people that have been scattered through sin will be able to follow this road back home. A highway for the scattered of his people can come back home. From Assyria... And, of course, ultimately from Babylon, where they go into captivity, they can follow this highway. It points them right back to the Messiah. End of chapter 11. And I wanted to do chapter 12. It's only six verses, but the bell's going to ring. We can dive into it unless anybody has a question. It'll take three minutes. Okay, chapter 12, verse 1. 
And in that day, you will say, O Lord, I praise thee, though you are angry with me and your anger is turned away and you comfort me. When the Messiah finally comes and you're saved, you will be thanking God that I put you in captivity, God says. You will be thanking me that I spanked you and put you in time out. Because when you got out, you were reformed, you were, uh, you were corrected, you turned back to me, and peace reigned. You'll be thanking me because I will have turned my anger off and I will save you. You were angry. In fact, the King James says, though you were angry, literally, it's because you were angry. Your Bible might even say because. Because you were angry. Thank you because that corrected me. Verse 2, behold, Isaiah is now singing, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah, all caps in my Bible, maybe in yours too, the Lord Jehovah is my strength and song, become my salvation. Mine says the Lord Jehovah, it's Yahweh. It is God and God alone is what he says. Because God and God alone has my shepherd. God and God alone is my shelter. God and God alone is my protector. Because of all that, I have no reason to fear my enemies. You're my savior. This is very similar to Exodus 15, which is the song of Moses. As they won their Exodus freedom, they started singing praise to God. Well, Isaiah just wrote chapter 11. It's the spiritual Exodus. You get saved by the Messiah. So let's sing to him. Verse 3. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water out of the wells of salvation. Zechariah 13, verse 1. In the air of the Messiah, a fountain will burst open. A fountain of God's salvation to Jerusalem and everyone else. In Revelation 7, 17, um, the fountain of living water will flow. Same uh, metaphor, same visual. So you draw water from the wells of salvation. He's praising God. He's singing a song to God. Verse 4, in that day, you people who were in captivity and come out of it will say, praise the Lord, call upon his name, declare his doings among the people, make mention his name is exalted. There's two more in the, previous, or the, the next two verses. It's just a list of things to say when you're praising God in song. Praise the Lord, give him the credit. Call upon his name, appeal to his authority, declare his doings, tell the sinner who saved you. Make mention his name is exalted. Don't undermine his name, don't blaspheme his name, lift his name up. Verse 5, sing unto the Lord, for he has done excellent things. Make this known in all the earth. Why am I singing to God? Because who else could have saved me? I couldn't save me. Me put me in Babylon. Me put me in sin, but he got me out. He saved me. Sing to him. Finally, verse 6. Cry out and shout, inhabitant of Zion, because great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. That's the song we sing sometimes ourselves. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, is mighty. And I saw him high and lifted up. Well, that's here from Isaiah 12. Cry out and shout. Shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. Why? Because he died for you. He came for you. He saved you. Let it be known to all. Happy, happy ending. When we get to chapter 13, you're all terrible and you need to repent starting next chapter. That's all I got. Thanks you guys very much.